Welcome to New Life Downtown Sunday School, February 2nd, 2014. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 51 to begin. And you'll immediately recognize it because oftentimes Glenn uses Psalm 51 rather than the Book of Common Prayer confession that we say before the Eucharist. And so Psalm 51, if you're there, what is the story, the backstory behind this psalm? Somebody. This one isn't hard. That's right. It's even in the, uh, what we call the superscription. Super means above. Sub means below. Scribe means to write. The superscription is the notation that appears above many of the Psalms. We don't consider that to be inspired scripture, but we also know that they have been there for thousands of years. And so they give us a clue as to how these particular Psalms were used in the worship of Israel. And so the superscription tells us this was written on the occasion of Nathan busting King David after he had had this affair with Bathsheba, followed by trying to cover it up, followed by even, you remember what he did? He allowed Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, to be put in harm's way and killed, and really he was complicit in the murder of Uriah. So we would call this a a psalm of penance or a penitent psalm, and my immediate question to you is when you look at it, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Would you say this is, at first glance, a personal individual psalm or a corporate psalm? Individual. Because it's David talking about his conflict, his sin, his confession. But would you go back up to the superscription, and what does it tell us about how this psalm is to be used in public worship? What does it say? To the chief musician, or some translations would say to the choir master. Now think about that for a minute. Here is a psalm that is chronicling or journaling David's deepest most private moment in his life. His confession, having been caught in in the act or after the fact of this heinous crime, and in the midst of that, David pours out this grief to God, this penance to God, at some point later, because it's doubtful that David actually, in his first confession to God, actually did it in verse. You know, he, he didn't rhyme. He didn't do it in poetry. But after the fact... His confession is put into the form and the structure of Hebrew poetry. And now the chief choir master is being given this to teach to the choir for the whole assembly to sing. Can you imagine what David might have thought showing up on a Saturday Sabbath morning at the temple and all of a sudden he hears the musicians and he says, oh no, they're singing that one again. They're singing his most private confession of sin as a public example or a public worship. Yeah, we call it a perp walk today. You know, you're 
kind of strutting your guilt in front of everybody. What I mean to show you by just that one example is that we have in the book of Psalms not just this collection of individual and collective prayers and praise and confessions and penance and laments, but we have the very worship book of the people of Israel and ultimately of the early church. Excellent point. Uh, for the sake of the tape, Steve Moon gave the example of the power of music, David being a musician, and uh, the, the comparison of Yo-Yo Ma and 9-11. And of course, uh, Steve's wife, Terry, is that wonderful violinist that you see sometimes on the stage, so uh, they have a distinct perspective there. That's right. This didn't catch David by surprise, ultimately, is my point. I, I played with you for a moment, saying him being embarrassed or frustrated, but he may have even helped with the way that this psalm was written. Because they understood early on that worship is not merely, uh, oh, happy day. But worship involves us laying our entire lives before the, the Lord, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as it were. And so, today we're going to look just briefly, kind of an overview, and what I call the big themes of the book of Psalms, or of the Psalms. And so, I'm going to just kind of talk through a few of these slides for a moment. The first thing is, is how are the Psalms put together, the genre of the Psalms? You remember your third or your fourth grade teacher talking about genre of literature? What did she mean by that? What, give me an example of some genre of literature. What's that? Fiction. Poetry. Narrative. Of course, there's, there's genre, there's subcategories, and there's subcategories of those. You know, I mean, in, in a general way, you have fiction, nonfiction. But then you have narrative, you have historical fiction, you have fantasy, and, and so on and so forth. Well, the Bible is exactly the same way. We have historical narrative, we have poetry, we have some that are unique to the scriptures, we call epistles, things like that. Well, even in the book of Psalms, we have different genre, different ways in which the Psalms are used. Some of them seem to focus on one thing over another. And we'll look at that, but how do we categorize the Psalter, which is the, the word for the book of Psalms? Well, the historic way in the Hebrew Bible, and in your version itself, it distinguishes book one, two, three, four, and five. Now, the reason they probably chose five was the Torah, because the number five would bring to their mind the Torah, but there's no real categorization that you can see in the, this division. There, in other words, book one isn't mostly praise psalms. Book two isn't mostly lament psalms. They're all scattered. So why do you think they might have done it. What, what led them to this? It's a very practical, very pragmatic answer. How were scriptures recorded in those days? Were they books with binding? Well, memorized would be the primary way, but the temple would have its own set. What would they have a set of? Scrolls. So what we see here is it's the same principle behind the major prophets and the minor prophets. You know, the minor prophets People often think they're less important than the major prophets. They're AAA, you know, and trying to get a major league contract. No, the minor prophets, the only distinguishing factor feature between the minor prophets and the major prophets is the minor prophets are real short documents. And all of them would fit on one scroll, which was approximately the same size, for example, as the book of Isaiah, which would fit on one scroll. So rather simply, we assume, but I think it's a fair assumption, that they chose five because of the connection to the Torah, but they were just divided 
by size. And so scroll one, scroll two, scroll three, scroll four, scroll five, we're all, and if you actually add up all the verses in each one, they're very, very similar. It was just evenly divided, so they, the musician would go in and pick one of the scrolls and, and open it up, and that's where they would start. And so that's the simple division. But we have other divisions over the centuries that we've tried to look at. And you can read, as you, as you study and explore the Psalms, there are dozens and dozens of different schemes, different ways of looking at them. We're going to, over the next four weeks, look at them in a, in a very simple way. This isn't the only way, it's just one way of looking at them. But laments, praise psalms, royal psalms, and wisdom psalms. Laments, what, what do you think of when you think of a lament? A complaint. Oh Lord, woe is me. And that's a rather significant number of psalms. One of the challenges that I have personally, and I think a lot of, a lot of folks do, is in the, in the charismatic world, there's been a teaching that's, that's kind of come up and down and, and it's influenced, but it's always been there. This, this sense that you're always supposed to be happy and overcoming and positively confessing everything and there's never any problems in life, right? And you've heard that. You've maybe even been influenced by that a little bit. Particularly the idea that you can only say positive things because if you say something negative, you're giving, in a sense, power to those words, and words have creative force and so on and so forth. Well, if that is true, then a third of the Psalms are really not inspired because they're nothing but complaints. Oh God, I have swam in my tears all night long and you have left me. Where are you? I don't, can't not find you. Or if that's not true about negative confession, perhaps what we're seeing in the Psalms is people's real hurts and emotions, but rather than just being brewed upon and complained about and, and, and worried about, they are expressed to God in prayer and praise so that in God's presence, he can give his perspective. And so we have laments. And we have both individual laments, that's, oh Lord, why am I in this situation? And we have corporate laments, which would be what? Lord, why are we in this situation? Woe is us. We have praise. That's where the primary focus is praise. Can you think of a psalm in your mind or a few of the psalms that would be primarily praise psalms? How about near the end of the book of Psalms? Praise the Lord with the cymbals. Praise the Lord with the drums. Praise the Lord with the high cymbals, with the low cymbals. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Boy, that was... That sounded like a cold, snowy morning. Let everything that hath breath. There we go. Okay. Amen. That's the Psalms that praise is the primary focus. In fact, does anybody know the Hebrew word for praise? Hillel. And the name of God, Yahweh, is often uh, contracted to Yah. So what do you get if you say praise God, Hillel, Yah? Hallelujah. That's what it means. Praise God. Royal Psalms, those are among my favorite. That's where it's, it's kind of a parallel universe. It's written on the one hand to address the leaders of this world, the, the, the kings and the rulers of this world and their responsibilities and their, how God views what they are to do as being, demonst as being demonstrative of how God 
loves, it lovingly rules the world and the universe, but at the same time, it's, it's drawing them to a higher accountability because God is the only perfect king. And it's really, they're powerful, powerful psalms. And then finally, wisdom psalms, practical counsel, Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight shall be in the law of the Lord, and in his law shall he meditate day and night. It's a psalm that's kind of a little sermon. But like Steve said, the power of music. If you put the psalm to verse and you sing the psalm, if Glenn taught us a song every Sunday that had the main points of his sermon and it was a catchy tune, we could remember the sermon a lot easier, couldn't we? As opposed to, what did he preach on last week? Uh, I don't know. I think it was good, but I don't really remember. So these are the four genre of psalms or categories we're going to look at. And what I want to spend the balance of our time with are some big ideas and some major influences, regardless of whether they're laments or praise or wisdom or royal psalms, there are three major influences that you will see all throughout the book of Psalms. And the first one is the influence of community. Now, we talk a lot about that. You've heard a lot about that in, uh, over the years, but even here in downtown, New Life downtown, we talk a lot about community. And when we talk about community, we're not trying to just say everything's a party, everybody's always getting together. What we're saying is that the scriptures seem to talk in terms of our faith of we more than I. In the New Testament, we can see that so clearly because remember what the language of the New Testament originally was? Greek, right? In Greek, we actually have a plural pronoun for you and a singular pronoun for you that are two different words. Now, in America, we have that for the Southerners, y'all, okay, right? Y'all's one person and all y'all's more than one, right? Yeah, I had a secretary when I was pastoring. I had a secretary from East Texas, and she was always fixing. She always said y'all, but she was always fixing to do stuff. You know, she never did anything. She just was fixing to do something. Well, y'all is, is the language of the entire New Testament. It's always talking about community. In the Old Testament, they couldn't fathom the idea of an individual, independent, me-alone relationship with Yahweh. And Americans are immediate pushed back at that and say, well, you have to know Jesus as your personal savior. Don't you believe that? And that's kind of one of those, when did you stop beating your wife questions? Yes, I believe that every person needs to know Jesus as their savior. But can you show me any place in the Bible that talks about Jesus being your personal savior? It doesn't exist. It exists in the four spiritual laws and it exists in a lot of gospel tracts in America. And my suggestion is that our independent, rugged, American frontier individualism has pushed and molded and changed our theology more than our theology has changed our culture. Because we are individual, rugged, you know, frontiersmen. Any school teacher, any elementary teacher can tell you little kids when they start learning the Pledge of Allegiance, instead of saying indivisible with liberty and justice for all, they say individual with liberty and justice for all. And there are adults that still think that's the correct word, don't they? So the idea of community, of this is our faith, these are our people, this is our family, he is our God, 
you see all through the book of Psalms. The second is the influence of the exile. The ex- what do I mean by the exile? Somebody up here that hasn't. What is the exile in Hebrew history? E- well, that's the first one. That's right. When they, when they left Egypt, and then there was, an, there was a greater exile. Yeah. Babylonian Assyrian exile. That's right. In fact, that ends up being the history of Israel. First, they're, ex- first, they're slaves in Egypt. And then they get their freedom. And then they get, make it to the, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But no sooner do they get things set up than what happens? They become exiled again to Babylon, to Assyria. And the latter exile, of ba- the Babylonian Assyrian exile, became a, an archetype. It became a defining experience and understanding of everything they did. And so... When you go to the end of some of the later psalms when it says, we wept as we sat by the rivers of Babylon and remembered the songs of Zion. They wept, remembering, oh, when we were on our own land. The exile influenced them in such a profound way. And so you'll see the influence of the exile throughout so many of the psalms. And then finally... The influence of the future hope. That the way it is now is not the way it will always be. And I love this little passage that many of us have heard. Psalm 126 verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. How does that little verse show all three major influences? How does it show community? Those who, not he who or she who, those who. It's already written to a group of people. How does it show the influence of the exile? Sowing in tears. And then the future hope shall, or will, which is future, reap with songs of joy. Even in this one little verse, we have all three of those major influences, which I think is just a a remarkable uh, little evidence of, of God's inspiration being poured through, bless you, being poured through the real experiences of the people of Israel. One could even say the book of Psalms is God's truth poured through human experience. It's a wonderful marriage, if you will. Most of the book of Psalms is not thus saith the Lord. Most of the Psalms is thus saith me in your presence, O Lord. And can you see the difference there? Now, what would be the difference if you're going to try to understand and develop theology out of the book of Psalms one of the most important aspects of, of, I think, of theology is looking at the direction of dialogue. Is this clearly God speaking to us, or is this us speaking to God? And i got to be careful not to put the same kind of biblical uh, standards on something that is me speaking to God than if it's God speaking to me. You know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's a nice little cliche, but does that work when David says, Break their teeth in their mouth, O God, for you are my rock. Hallelujah. (laughs) Hey, it's in the Bible. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I'm praying for major dental catastrophe in the lives of my enemies. Or it shows that a totally frustrated, angry guy can just 
say what's in his mind and mouth off, and in the midst of it, still God will give him his perspective. What a wonderful present we have in the book of Psalms. The honesty of it. So, what's my list? Well, this is the short list. There are five words that are really five themes, five major ideas, meta-themes, if you will, in the book of Psalms. There's probably more. This is my short list. A lot of this I stole unashamedly from uh, a wonderful theologian, Dr. David Hubbard, who was the past president of Fuller Seminary many, many years ago. And Dr. Hubbard wrote a, a powerful text on understanding the Psalms. And a lot of this is from him, and that influenced me, has influenced me for decades. But there are five words, and we want to just take a couple minutes for each word and, and look at how these words permeate the book of Psalms. Starting next week, we'll actually look at the structure, how the Psalms are written, how Hebrew poetry works about parallelism and those kinds of things. And we'll take a look at the praise Psalms, the lament Psalms, the royal Psalms, the wisdom Psalms over the next three weeks. But today, we want to just look at these big themes and how they're used in the scriptures. So if I go to a, a Jewish person and I want to say hello in Hebrew, what do I usually say? Shalom. Peace. Right? No. It's so much more. Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. How many times have you been in a prayer meeting where we did that? Let's just pray for the peace of Jerusalem. What, is it? what does that mean? Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be upon you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. What is this peace, this shalom. Well, it's not just the absence of hostility or, or violence. Shalom means completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity. It's often translated in your English Bibles as prosperity, by the way. Fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. Shalom comes from the root word shalom, which looks exactly the same, I know, but in Hebrew, trust me, it's different. Meaning to be complete, perfect, and full. In modern Hebrew, the obviously related word shalem means to pay for, and shalom means to be fully paid. And I want to bring it into a New Testament perspective, because when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus said, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, how would be your name? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Every time we pray, for someone's life to get ordered correctly. Somebody has cancer, we pray for healing. Somebody needs a job, we pray for provision. Somebody has a, a child that is a prodigal and is in, in drugs, and we pray for a, a, a deliverance and a wholeness and a healing in that relationship. Every time we pray for something like that, what we're saying is, Lord, the way that bodies will be in heaven, the way that relationships will be in heaven, the way that life will be ordered in heaven, we want it to be that way on earth right now. We're borrowing from a future reality into a present evil age. In the New Testament, they call that the kingdom of God. The rule, the reign of God. Borrowing from a present future, or from a future reality into the present evil age. The already and the not yet. And that's the concept of shalom. Shalom means, Lord, may it be the way you intended it. And the way theologians often call this is creation intent. What did God say every time he created something in the book of Genesis after he created it? What, say it loud. It is good. It is shalom. 
It's the way it's supposed to be. And God created the animals and said, it is good. And God created the skies and the earth. It is good. There were no tsunamis. Yeah, Steve. I don't think so. Is it very good? I don't think so. But I got to be honest. I did better in Hebrew, Greek than Hebrew. I, I think it's probably just an imperative, and it might just have a, 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 a um, repetition, which is often what Hebrew and Greek does is a repeat to bring emphasis, um, kind of a superlative. So the idea of shalom is, Lord, the way you created it to be, may it be that way. Peace. Prosperity. Prosperity is not so much, you know, I got a Mercedes. In fact, it's not that I got a Mercedes, and I don't have a Mercedes. I have a Honda. But (laughs) prosperity is, Lord, that everything in my life is the way you intended it to be. And these Psalms, when we read them, they talk about the fat of the lamb, and, and, you know, the the wine is overflowing, and the cattle are doing well, and I got a whole bunch of kids because that was really important in an agricultural society. Right? Everything is working the way it's supposed to work. And so when we pray shalom through the Psalms, we're praying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Any other questions? Does that make sense? That's a powerful, powerful concept in the book of Psalms. Now, this is a power. This, I, I, don't, I don't even have any favorites. I think all five of these are my favorites. But this is one of my favorites. It's translated mercy, it's translated steadfast love, it's translated faithfulness, sometimes it's translated uh, uh, just love. And it's the Hebrew word chesed. In Psalm 136, he, he has a statement and every single refrain, the second half of every verse in Psalm 136 is, and his chesed shall endure forever. And his chesed shall endure forever. And we think his mercy shall endure forever, his love shall endure forever, his faithfulness, you know, and let's worship, and isn't that fun? But it's such a powerful word. Give thanks to the Lord our God, he is good, for his chesed endures forever. For the Lord is good, his chesed endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Chesed means covenant loyalty. Now when Abram was met by God, and it says God told him to sacrifice those animals and to cut them in two and then God put Abram into a deep sleep and it says while Abram was in a deep sleep God in his presence went through between the 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 animals that were sacrificed remember that and at the end of that and God made a covenant with Abram changed his name to Abraham so he had part of the name of Yahweh in his name Abraham was asleep through the whole thing it was a one-sided covenant God reaching down and making a covenant with sinful human beings that they were unable to reciprocate. It wasn't a contract. It wasn't, you know, when you, uh, when you buy a car, you have a great contract. You give them the money, they give you the car. This was one-sided. God put them in a deep sleep. God made the covenant. God is so loyal to his covenant that in the Old Testament, it, it, the book of Hosea comes to mind. Who did Hosea marry? Her name was Gomer. What, what did she do? She was a prostitute. And God had 
Hosea marry this prostitute as a living parable of the people of Israel and their spiritual idolatry and spiritual um, fornication, if you will, and the way that they were leaving God and going to another lover. And and the the profound, intimate language is, is unmistakable. And that's the sense of covenant loyalty, how much God loves us. He'll keep accepting us and keep coming after us time and time and time and time again. No matter how many times we end up in the gutter, God reaches down and gets us. So the Psalms talk about when I was in my in miry clay, when I was in the pit, you reached down and you grabbed me and pulled me out. Chesed, covenant loyalty. When describing men, doing favors, kindness to the lowly, care for the poor, pity toward the weak, affection toward God. These are ways that chesed is used in the book of Psalms. When describing God, deliverance from enemies, redemption from trouble, Redemption from sin, restoring life, and keeping covenant. It's it's just so remarkable. Our weak translation of mercy or love is likely influenced by the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And uh, this is a time where word studies help. I tell people, I tell students in, in seminary classes, that when you have to go back to Hebrew or Greek to make your point, you've usually already lost your point. Because the translations we have are very good. And the only thing worse than not knowing Greek or Hebrew is knowing a little bit and thinking that you're well-armed. Amen? (laughs) Those of you who've studied it all know that, you know, uh, the resources we have are so good. Don't don't get into a word study war. However, I think in in studying the book of Psalms, a few of these big ideas have been lost and trivialized by the, the blandness of our English language to describe these powerful powerful concepts so going down the list again justice and righteous righteousness mishpat and sedekar salt and pepper i had a theology professor at seminary who had over his door a little really nice little calligraphy sign that said in the hebrew it said mishpat and sedekar these are probably the two most common words Throughout the whole book of Psalms, they're used either individually, or separately, or paired immediately together. I think, and I may be a little wrong, but I'm close. I think over 161 times in the book of Psalms. Now, there's only 150 Psalms. So 161 times in the Psalms tells you this is a big deal. Okay? Mishpat and Sedekah. It's often translated justice and righteousness. Let's look at it. Psalm 33.5, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. Psalm 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Okay, I have actually on the slide, there are 145 justice uh, mishpat verses and 60 of them pair justice, and another 60 compare justice and righteousness together. So it's all through the, the book, all through there. Let's look at mishpat and tzedakah. This, I actually took this from an article about 10 years ago in Christianity Today. Justice, in biblical terms, is more than equal treatment under the law. You know, truth, justice, in the American way. It involves putting power at the service of the powerless and putting wealth at the service of the poor. I'm not making this up, and Pope Francis isn't a communist. <laughs> I just want to make that statement. I've been hearing some people really upset. I actually read, uh, you know, don't read anything on the internet. It just that's, it makes it easier. Just don't read anything. Somebody said it was a little. 
Facebook's so wonderful because you can get in arguments with people you've never met. <laughs> and a friend of mine posted this really great little article about Pope Francis a couple months ago. And I, I said something like, this is really great. And then some other one of his Facebook friends just blasted him. And so the next thing you know, me and the other guy are kind of going at it, which is so stupid. <laughs> Don't do that. But we did. And he made the comment. He said, Pope Francis probably isn't even a Christian and knows nothing about economics. And at that point, I just, I, I wanted to say, you are a moron. Send, you know, or post. But I, I chose to just bow out of the conversation at that point. Because who are they to judge whether or not he's a Christian? That's just so absurd. And the, what bothered them was he is always seeming to defend the poor and the powerless and saying that, in fact, he said something very similar just recently about, about the wealthy should be at the service of the poor. And I know we have a redistribution of wealth. I, I, I get it. I, I do read a little bit. I understand that. But I'm not talking about American economics. I'm talking about what the scriptures talk about when they say justice. And they say that the follower of God, of Yahweh, is not primarily concerned with accumulating wealth in his own life, but the follower of Yahweh is concerned about being a vehicle, a vessel through whom Yahweh can bless all the nations, blessed in order to be a blessing, according to the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, right? You, you will be a father to all these nations, and you are, I will bless you so that you can bless others. Yeah, but that's the Old Testament. Galatians chapter 3, 12 through 14. And the promise given to Abraham now is given to us through Christ. We have the same opportunity and obligation as Abraham. Righteousness, meanwhile, is more than honesty and fair dealings. It requires the alignment of our lives with God's original good intentions for creation. Like justice, righteousness in a nation especially benefits the poor and the powerless who cannot insulate themselves from the effects of sin. That bottom line is important. The poor and powerless cannot insulate themselves from the effects of sin. And I, I can't remember who said it. It might have been de Tocqueville. But someone many, many years ago said that the true greatness of a country can be measured by how they treat the poorest and the most vulnerable among them. Not by how big their army is, but by how they treat those who are really on the outside. I will never forget, I was about 14 years old, and the denomination I grew up in, in Southern California, we had a, our, our denomination had a home, I think I shared this in my last Sunday school class, but there's some new faces here. Um, it was a residential home in Northern California, and we would now say developmentally disabled, but in those days it was adult-retarded people. Uh, and it was a, a, about 75 or 100 people lived in this residential home. It was a, a place where they could live that was so much better than the institutionalized life that so many of them would have uh, through the state. And it was, it was sponsored and, and paid for through our, I was a Lutheran, through our Lutheran denomination. And they would bring youth groups for a weekend from all over California, and they knew exactly what they were doing. We would come for a weekend, and our primary responsibility was just wheeling the wheelchairs or whatever to the chapel services or to the dining hall of the residents. And some of these people had serious physical uh, handicaps as well as mental and developmental handicaps. I remember a woman who had this beautiful voice but had no arms and no legs. And she would sing as we would, I mean, being 14 years old, it scared me to death. 
you know, to be pushing this wheelchair and, and afraid she would fall out or something. You know, I'm just terrified. And I'll never forget Pastor Ron. He was the chaplain of, of, this, of the um, uh, institute. In fact, your brother's a Lutheran pastor. Yeah, yeah. Pastor Ron, uh, I get choked up thinking about this because the first night we were just, we were all traumatized. <laughs> you know, young 14, 15 year old, 16 year old kids. And Pastor Ron looked at us and he said, he pointed over to a group of them and he said, God loves them. And he said, the moment your gospel is so complex or so sophisticated, it can't include them. It is not Jesus' gospel. I have never forgot that. And the last 14 years that I've spent in refugee camps in Africa and with the poorest of the poor and the most disenfranchised people on the planet... And, when I, and knowing that God loves them. And I come back here and I hear some very wealthy person spout a bunch of nonsense and hatred and then put God's name on it. I'm sorry, but I get upset. And then I usually have to get off the internet because I'm going to call them a moron and then they'll see that my name and, you know, it all goes downhill from there. What's, yeah, the, or wish them a dental plan. Yes, very good, Melissa. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, look at my phone here. I can't believe this is a classroom without a clock. I've got a, my phone, but there's no... Isn't there supposed to be like a big clock that goes... Right? Where is it? The last of these five, we had Shalom. We had um, Chesed. We had Mishpat. We have Tzedakah. The last one is not a word as much as a theme. The two ways. You'll see this all throughout the book of Psalms. It's... Psalm 1-6 is one of the classic examples of this. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In Hebrew poetry, Hebrew poetry is different than English poetry. English poetry is based on what? Rhyming. You know? The... Uh, uh, Everything rhymes and meters where it, you know, it sounds the same. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme sounds and words. Hebrew poetry rhymes ideas. So what you have in Hebrew poetry is a statement and then another statement that either restates it a different way or in this, and that's called synonymous, or it's called parallelism, where you have a line and then you have another line. And there's different kinds of parallelism. Synonymous parallelism is where it says the same thing. It just changes the words a little bit, but it means the same thing. It provides a, a little bit of a of an poetry, an artistic sort of uh, understanding of it. There's another type where it turns it on its head. It says, this, not this. And they call that antithetic parallelism. Anti means against Thesis means idea. So this one says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's still saying the same thing, but it's saying it by saying the opposite thing second, or sometimes the opposite one is the first one. And the reason it does this is because it, it makes it easier to identify not that way, but this way. Thomas Aquinas, who is often called the father of modern scholasticism, he was a Catholic theologian in the uh, 1300s? Yeah. Yeah, I think around the 1300s. Um, I didn't know Tom personally, you know, but uh, Thomas Aquinas was a brilliant theologian and philosopher, and he had an interest, and he's not the, it's not original with him, but he did some writing on it. The idea of 
when, when there's a hard concept for people to get, he talked about clearing the table. In other words, if I'm having a hard time explaining to you what it is, I could start taking things off that it isn't. It's not this, it's not that, it's not, oh, you mean it's that. And so this is essentially clearing the table. Not this. Not this. In fact, Psalm 1 is, is a great one. Blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is these things. He's not this, he's not this, and he's not this. And in so doing, the two ways makes the way more obvious to all of us. Okay, so that's a lot to digest. I want to just look at one final psalm. And just to show you an example of how some of these themes are so clearly evident through the book of Psalms. Psalm 72 is a royal psalm. It's a psalm that on the one hand is talking about the natural king, the earthly king, the leader, Solomon, or one of his descendants. But at the same time, you can see where it's talking about how God as the king rules. And it raises the standard of human rulership and human leaders give the king your mishpat O god and your righteousness to the royal son mishpat and sedekah may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice now that's parallelism by the way give the king your justice O god and your righteousness to the royal son who would be the king is saying the same idea a slightly different way using both words may he judge your people with righteousness and you're poor with justice. Again, using Mishpat and Zedekiah, he's, but he, he's driving home the same point using parallelism. Let the mountains bear prosperity, shalom for the people, and the hills in Mishpat. In other words, now, why would it talk about the hills and, right, and prosperity or shalom? What kind of society was it? It was agricultural. So the hills would reflect human prosperity. Because the hills would be where the cattle could graze. The hills would be where the, the crops could grow. And so the hills would reflect the means in which God allows people to create wealth. And that's not a stretch. That's just how it would be, how it would be communicated in an agricultural society. And so what it's saying is, may even the, the systems and the institutions for wealth in a society... Create shalom for all the people. And may they create mishpat and, and the, the serving even the poor. Because even in the Old Testament laws, they allowed for the gleaning for the people that were homeless or didn't have anything to, to get that which, you know, kind of just hung over the, uh, the boundaries. I remember years ago when we lived more in the Village 7 area, we were walking in one of those... Um, you know, the little green belts behind there. My oldest son, Eric, was probably about seven, and he and I were walking, and there was an apple tree that was not trimmed at all, and it was sticking way out over most of the common green belt path, and there were apples on right over the path, and I picked one of them, and Eric said, Dad, that's stealing, and I said, no, it's not, 
If they didn't want any of the, us to get any of the apples and they cut and trimmed their tree right at their border in the boundary and I were to climb over their fence and get an apple, I'm stealing. But the fact that it's coming from their tree, that their tree had been allowed to hang over into a public space means that that apple's free for anybody who wants to pick it. Okay? That same idea was codified in the Old Testament law so that the hills and the mountains would bear prosperity for the people and justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and may he crush the oppressor. So the language here is so profound that God wants us to watch out for the vulnerable. There's just no question about it. I've taught, for a number of years, I taught uh, the book of Psalms as a course to the uh, students that would come from all over the country to the New Life School of Worship. And every year, when I would get done talking about some of the, about th- these issues, I would have students come up and say, I had no idea how political the book of Psalms was. And I'd say, the book of Psalms is not political. The sad thing is we've taken these issues and we've primarily politicized them rather than theologized them. We look at them through political lenses rather than looking at them through the life of God and the community of the believers, which is the way God intended it to be. Not as a political statement about one party or the other. Guess what? Neither party is the party of God. Just wanted to let you know that. Because there are, there are truth, there's truth and error in both extremes. But as we are believers and together corporately are experiencing the life of God and seek to see that through our church and through our lives and in our communities and in our culture, thus kingdom and culture, what happens is God's will becomes evident and we pray God's will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Okay. Got about a minute or two. I got to let you all go. Any, any questions? I, this was a lot of information. I'm sorry for just blasting you with it. But questions? Does this make some sense? Okay. Well, next week, we're going to launch into looking at the different types of psalms. And over the next three weeks, we'll look at the royal psalms, the lament psalm. Probably lament will be next week. Royal psalms, the uh, praise psalms, and the wisdom psalms. 